On to part two. All right, so let's start off with women and child labor reform. Now, the child labor was the most successful of all the progressive uh, social reforms. Florence Kelly, and that's with two E, so K-E-L-L-E-Y, she's going to investigate and report on child labor while she's living at Whole House. Uh, Kelly is going to champion the welfare for women, African Americans, and consumers. So, you know, anybody that consumes anything. Uh, she's going to be the leader of the National Consumer League, and she's going to help organize the consumer boycotts of goods that are made by children or by workers that are toiling in the unsanitary or dangerous portions of jobs. Uh, as women were the primary consumers and families, boycotts were often effective. She also held socialist views. Now, the gains for women and child labor reform. All right, so let's start off with Mueller versus Oregon. This is going to be a 1906 Supreme Court case that will uphold a Oregon law that restricts female workers to a 10-hour workday. Now, the case was won by Louis Brandeis. And that's B-R-A-N-D-E-I-S. Now, she's going to... Ar- Sorry. Uh, Louis will argue... With the uh, economic and social science evidence that women were often exploited, but considered to be weaker than men. And today's argument would be considered pretty chauvinistic. There's going to be a number of other laws that will pass at the federal and state level because of Mueller versus Oregon. Then you have the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire that we've talked about a little bit, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company Fire. This is going to be in 1911. It will kill over 140 women workers. And these will be mostly girls. So most of the women that worked... Um, were usually before they were married because it wasn't considered, I don't like kosher or whatever, for women to work after they were married because then they're taking jobs from men, blah, blah, blah. Um, New York City and other legislatures are going to pass laws regulating the hours and conditions in sweatshops. Many of the states are going to pass safety and sanitation codes for industry, and they're going to close certain harmful trades to juveniles. Then we're going to get the Child Labor Act in 1916. So, you know, not too far after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. This is going to restrict child labor on products in interstate commerce. And this will be the first time that Congress is going to regulate labor within a state using interstate commerce power. The law was invalidated by the Supreme Court two years later on the grounds that it interfered with states' powers. (laughs) Whatever. All right, so by 1916, there's going to be 32 different states that are going to regulate the hours and ages at which children could work. Some states are going to adopt compulsory education up to the high school level, which is, you know, impressive at the time. Uh, there's going to be a conservative Supreme Court that will eventually overturn a lot of the gains for women and children labor in the 1910s and the 1920s, so poo-poo on them. <clears throat> Uh, so the Child Labor Act of 1916 will be overturned, and then Atkins versus the Children's Hospital in 1923 will overturn Mueller versus Oregon that was back there in 1908. All right, so some political reforms. Uh, you had Robert La Follette and the Wisconsin Experiment. Now, he was a governor of uh, Wisconsin. He was the nation's first progressive governor. In 1901, he helped destroy a political machine. He took control away from lumber and railway trusts, and he established a progressive government. So he's busy. He worked closely with the experts on the facility of the State University at Madison, including Richard Eli that we talked about earlier. He's going to regulate public utilities by instituting public utility commissions that will create legislation for workers safety, railroads, and regulation of public utilities. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Now, there's uh, we'll have a direct primary. So in 1903, La Follette will pressure the legislature to institute an election open to all voters within a party. He's also going to introduce the, initi- the initiative referendum and recall. And that initiative is you know to allow citizens to introduce a bill. The referendum is where voters could cast a ballot for or against the proposed law. And the recall gave citizens right to remove elected officials from office. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. So then we get the direct election of senators, and this is going to be a favorited goal of the progressives. This is uh, this countered the Senate corruption and control by trusts. And the people could now vote for their Senate. Therefore, the state legislature, legislature had selected state senators. In 1913, there will be a similar measure that's going to be approved in the 17th Amendment to the Constitution. There will be a state income tax that will be adopted in Wisconsin. This is going to be the first state to do income taxes. I mean, it's kind of a good thing, kind of a meh thing. I mean, you know, it just depends on how you look at it. Anyway, the existing school system is going to be replaced with the state civil service or the merit system. Other states are going to follow uh, Wisconsin's lead. The Republican California governor, Hiram Johnson, will break the grip of the Southern Pacific Railroad on California. Like La Follette, he's going to end up setting a political machine of his own. Charles Evan Hughes, who was the Republican governor of New York, who earlier gained fame as an investigator of malpractice by gas and insurance companies and by the coal trust. Governor Woodrow Wilson will turn New Jersey into one of the nation's most liberal states. Lafayette is also going to become the first of the Republican insurgents to reach the Senate, where he stood against the Republican old guard who favored that whole laissez-faire with government help. All right, to a secret ballot, or the Australian ballot. It was introduced most uh, most widely in the states to counteract these political machines. And it's going to reduce bribery as voting was now done secretly, and the machines were unable to effectively monitor voters. Political machines, not physical machines. Uh, now, unfortunately, the, the secret ballot also eliminated illiterate voters as the party workers could not help voters mark their ballots. <coughs> Today, however, there is... Um, a specific part of like the voters legislation or something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it does allow people who um, maybe who are illiterate, speak a different language, don't understand what they're reading, you know, basically need some suggestion or help um, to go to the ballot. They don't, they just don't pick for them. And it can't be like your boss and it can't be, you know, someone from the union or anything like that. So that kind of gets rid of the whole political machines idea. So it can be like a family member who can read the ballot off to you so you can make your choice. Anyway, I digress. All right, Galveston, Texas and the commission system. So in 1900, there's going to be a tidal wave that would devastate the city. So we get the commission system. The city is going to place power in the hands of five commissioners. Two were elected and three were appointed. The commission system is going to peak in 1915, not 50, 15. And it's going to be later replaced by a city manager system with a full-time city manager. Within 20 years, there's going to be 400 cities that will adopt this commission system. And it's going to reduce the power of the machine politics. So in some cases, these reforms are would value efficiency more than than democracy as civic control was further removed from the hands of the people and businessmen often dominated the commissions while the working class was not represented and this is going to be due to the decline in political machines. Now, Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt. The Prez. 
Anyway, he's going to be considered the first modern president. He was the first president in U.S. history to use government to directly help the public interest because he saw the presidency as a bully pulpit to preach his ideas. He supported progressive reforms with strong rhetoric, but in reality, he was more moderate and even conservative at times. He was considered to be a middle-of-the-road politician. He often bypassed congressional opposition, just like Jackson did previously, and he was enormously popular among a large percentage of Americans. He's also the first president to play a significant role in world affairs. So uh, he's going to bring what he considered to be the square deal. This is so capital, labor, and the public. And his programs embrace the three C's. Corporate regulation, consumer protection, and conservation of natural resources. He's pretty big into that. All right, so the regulation of corporations. So we're going to start off with the anthracite coal strike in 1902. Uh, this hard coal was used to heat homes, so th this is not railroad. Uh, about 140,000 workers of the United Mine Workers Union in the coal mines of Pennsylvania went on strike. They demanded a 20% pay increase, a reduction of workday from 10 to 9 hours, a fair weighing of coal, and better safety conditions. George Baer, B-A-E-R, is going to be the president of the company, and he will assume the public would oppose the miners, and then he be, so he refused to uh, arbitrate or negotiate. <clears throat> Bayer demanded Roosevelt prosecute the union leader for violation of the Sherman Antitrust, like President Cleveland had done in the Pullman strike of 1894, which we talked about previously. Uh, Roosevelt is going to threaten to seize the mines and operate them with federal troops if the owners refuse to compromise. This is going to be unprecedented action by a U.S. president. <clears throat> Roosevelt rationalized that the public at large was in jeopardy of having no coal during winter, so it was his duty to intervene. The mine owners consented to arbitration. They received a 10% pay boost and a nine-hour workday. Owners got assurances that the <clears throat> United Mine Workers, or the UMW, would not be officially recognized. And owners were also allowed to increase the price of coal by 10%. So they gave their, their miners a 10% raise and then passed that lovely savings on to you guys. Yay! And for Brittany, capitalism. All right, so the Department of Commerce and Labor. It was created in 1903 to settle disputes between capital and labor. Uh, ten years later, the agency split into two parts. So let's talk about the Bureau of Corporations. It was created as part of the Department of Commerce and Labor. And it monitored... <coughs> sorry. It monitored, <coughs> it monitored businesses and interstate commerce. It also helped break monopolies and pave the way for an era of trust busting because Roosevelt was a trust buster. In 1902, Roosevelt attacked the Northern Securities Company. This is a holding company and was owned by J.P. Morgan and James G. Hill. James G. Hill, you should remember from railroads. <clears throat> they had achieved a monopoly of railroads in the Northwest. Morgan was into everything. The Supreme Court will uphold Roosevelt's antitrust suit to dissolve it in 1904. Roosevelt was now seen by the public as a trust buster. In 1905, the court declared the Beef Trust as illegal. Sugar Fertilizer and Harvester Trust also came to be regulated by antitrust legislation. Old Teddy is later going to go after DuPont, Standard Oil, and Ameri the American Tobacco Company. All right, so the Hepburn Act, H-E-P-B-U-R-N. Uh, if I remember right, that will be one of your terms to know. 1906. It's going to expand the power of the Interstate Commerce Commission, which had been created in 1887. And it will severely restrict the railroads giving of free passes or a.k.a. bribery. All right. So the ICC or the Interstate Commerce Commission could nullify existing rates and stipulate maximum rates if necessary. 
the Hepburn Act is also going to stipulate that there were good trusts and bad trusts, which were seen as greedy, the bad trusts. Bad trusts could be prosecuted, but good trusts were healthy for the economy. So, like I said, Roosevelt was a trust buster. His reputation was inflated as he exaggerated his antitrust activities to gain political popularity. His actions were more symbolic to prove government, not private business, was in control. The threat of dissolution might make business more open to the government regulation. He did not consider wholesale trust-busting economically sound policy. He realized that the combination and integration was common practice in the business world, and he felt big, big business was not necessarily bad, so why punish success? In reality, trusts were healthier at the end of his presidency than before, when they <coughs> <coughs> and the main reason had to do with regulation. Now, President Taft, he will later bust up more trust than Teddy. Teddy even gave his blessing in 1907 for J.P. Morgan's plan to have U.S. Steel absorb the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company without fear of antitrust reprisals, where Taft launched suit against Morgan's U.S. Steel Corporation in 1911, and Roosevelt was furious. All right, consumer protection. So the impulse for meat protection. The European markets threatened to ban American meat since... Some meat from small packing houses were found to be tainted. So we had Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in 1906. The public was sickened, obviously, by the description of the unsanitary food, uh, food details. He detailed numerous accounts of filth, disease, and putrefaction in Chicago's damp and ill-ventilated ill slaughterhouses. In response, Teddy appointed a special investigating commission whose report almost outdid Sinclair's novel. That's disgusting. I digress. The Meat Inspection Act of 1906 was induced by Teddy, and Congress passed the bill. The preparation of meat shipped over state lines would be subject to federal inspection throughout the meatpacking process. Though the largest packers resisted certain features of the act, they accepted it as a means to drive out smaller businesses. Packers also received the government seal of approval on their exports. Then you had the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. It prevented the adulteration and mislabeling of food. And drugs. Because remember in the jungle they talked about the adulteration. They talked about like putting non-foods in the foods. Anyway. So a lot of the uh, patent medicines were laced with alcohol. While labels misrepresented the contents on their containers. And this is part of the reason for the, you know, so we got food and drug act. The law was the first step in the direction of nutritional labels that are required on all packaged foods sold today. Conservation. This is going to be the most significant and long-lasting of Roosevelt's legacy. So pre-1900 conservation was basically the continued growth of the logging and mining industries. This is going to be after the Civil War. is going to prompt the growth of a conservation movement to protect wilderness areas. Now, some notable examples of conservation included the creation of Yellowstone as the nation's first national park in 1872 and the designation of Yosemite as a national park in 1890 when a smaller part had been designated a state park in 1860. <coughs> John Muir was the most influential conservation, cons, uh, conservationist in the U.S. history and led the effort to protect Yosemite and later co-founded the Sierra Club in 1892. The Sierra Club worked initially to create Glacier and Rainier National Parks as well as preserving California's coastal redwoods. I really want to go see Glacier National Park. But anyway, the Hetch Hetchy Valley, H-E-T-C-H-H-E-T-C-H-Y Valley, issued in the 19-teens and 1920s, would illustrate the struggle between the resource use and preservation. The Sierra Club fought against damming the valley and considered by some to rival the beauty of Yosemite Valley. 
The people of San Francisco sought to dam the valley to ensure a stable water supply to the city. Now, eventually, the people of San Francisco, with the support of President Woodrow Wilson, won passage of a congressional bill to dam the valley in 1913. Let's talk about Roosevelt and some conservation. Uh, Teddy, that, that Roosevelt, not the other one. <clears throat> he was an outdoorsman, and he was appalled at the destruction of timber and mining or mineral resources in some of the nation's forests. Gifford Pinnock, P-I-N-C-H-O-T. He was the head of the Federal Division of Forestry and had made a significant contribution before Teddy became president. Teddy aroused public opinion through conservation. Uh, he sought a wise use policy of resources, not just preservation. And this was a position held by naturalist John Muir. Uh, an expanse of federal land would be used for recreation, sustainable yield logging, watershed protection, and stock grazing. The Newlands Reclamation Act of 1902. The federal government was authorized to collect money from the sale of public lands in western states and, and use those funds for the development of irrigation projects. Sellers would repay the cost of reclamation by building successful farms. Dams were constructed on virtually every major western river in subsequent decades, totaling in the dozens. So, you know, it's pretty good. Well, pretty bad. I mean, it's pretty, it's, you know what I'm saying. Anyway, critics argue that the dams destroyed natural river habitats, and they do, and they're very expensive to maintain. All right, so saving the forests. Yay! Teddy set aside about 125 million acres of forest and federal reserves, and this constituted three times as much as his three uh, predecessors combined. So, lots of land. Uh, millions of acres of coal deposits and water resources were useful for irrigation, and power were also earmarked. Earmarked, earmarked by the government. Roosevelt was re-elected in 1904 in his own right by a large electoral margin over the Democratic nominee, Alton Parker. Ever heard of him? I doubt it. Eugene Debs ran as the socialist candidate, and the Prohibition Party also ran a candidate. Teddy made himself a lame duck president by announcing after his election that he would not run for a third term. Because remember, this is, this is pre-you-can't-run-anymore. All right, the Panic of 1907. Wall Street suffered a short but brutal panic in 1907. Are you seeing a trend with Wall Street? They cannot get their act together. Anyway, runs, meaning people go, go to banks and go crazy and pull all their money out. Uh, suicides and criminal indictments against speculators occurred. Business leaders assailed Roosevelt for causing the panic due to his anti-business tactics and called the financial setback the Roosevelt Panic. Uh, Teddy felt wounded by the criticism, and he accused Wall Street of engineering the panic. He then embarked on a second wave of trust-busting. Reform now became even more acceptable, especially the lower tariff. The insurgent Republicans and Democrats took on the Republican old guard because of its Gilded Age views. Now, the results of all this, the panic demonstrated the real need for an elastic money supply. During the panic, banks were unable to increase the volume of currency in circulation to stem the tide of the downturn. Those with money were thus reluctant to loan money to fellow banks. This apparent weakness paved, paved the way for the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913. The labor and local reformers gained, gained not gamed, important middle life, middle life, middle class, having issues. Uh, they gained important middle class allies, and Teddy began incorporating some of William Jennings Bryan's ideas. The progressive as a whole finally embraced reforms, that were put forth by by the reformers, the socialists, the populists, the Knights of Labor, that secret secret little group there, the Farmers Alliances, and the Greenback Labor Party. 
Now, President William Howard Taft, the election of 1908, Taft defeated the Democrat, William Jennings Bryan, 321 to 116 in the Electoral College. And this was the third time that Bryan had been defeated in 12 years. Bless him. The Socialist Party under Eugene Debs and the Prohibition Party received just a fraction of the popular vote, and Taft had been Roosevelt's hand-picked successor. Taft was also, as I said earlier, a trust buster. He brought 90 suits against trust during his four years in office, and this is going to be twice as many as Roosevelt had. 1911, there was the United States versus the American Tobacco Company. The Supreme Court ordered the company to reorganize based on the rule of reason doctrine, but did not order its dissolution. The rule of reason meant that only reasonable restraints of trade were authorized, and this severely impaired the government's antitrust activities. And also in 1911, the court ordered the dissolution of the Standard Oil Company. The court said it it as a combination and restraint of trade was a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. The progressive legislation under Taft. Conservation. Taft's contributions equaled or outdid Teddy. So you had the Bureau of Mines. This was established to control mineral resources. It rescued millions of acres of western coal lands from exploitation. He also protected water power sites from private development. And the Mann's Elkins Act of 1910, telegraph, telephone, and cable corporations were put under the ICC, or the Interstate Commerce Commission, jurisdiction. Your postal savings bank system in 1910. The Post Office Department was authorized to receive savings deposits from individuals and pay interest of 2% a year, and this had been a major populist idea. Now, there's going to be a split in the Republican Party. So the Payne-Aldrich Tariff of 1909. This is going to be the most important cause for this 1912 split of the Republican Party. They're going to reduce the tariff, and this was a major goal for progressive reformers. Taft's campaign had pledged to deal with the tariff issue. The House passed a majority reductive bill with an inheritance tax provision, but the Senate tacked on hundreds of upward tariff revisions, so the tariff eventually averaged out about 37%, which, as we know, is significant. Taft is going to sign the, sign the bill and betray his campaign promises and alienate progressives. He's going to later veto other attempts to lower the tariff. So completely going against what he said he's going to do. Imagine that. The ballinger Pinnock controversy of 1910 is going to overshadow Taft's conservation successes. The Secretary of the Interior, <clears throat> Bollinger, opened public lands in Wyoming, Montana, and Alaska to development, but he did not share Gifford Pinnock's desire to reduce mining. Ballinger was sharply criticized by Pinnock, who was the chief of the Agriculture Department's Division of Forestry and a strong Teddy Roosevelt supporter. Taft is going to dismiss Pinnock for insubordination. Doesn't sound like insubordination to me, but they didn't ask me. Anyway, a storm of protest is going to arise from the conservationists and Roosevelt's friends, and a congressional committee will exonerate Pinnock. The issue is going to contribute to a growing split between Taft and Teddy. The split in the Republican Party was complete when Taft deserted progressives in their attack on the old guard speaker of the House, Uncle Joe Cannon, Roosevelt's new nationalism in 1910. Teddy had been been overseas during 1909 and much of 1910, but tariff and uh, conservation issues galvanized him to be more active. uh, He had a speech in Osawatomie. O-S-A-W-A-T-O-M-I-E. It's going to be in Kansas in 1910. He's going to introduce the new National Doctrine, which is going to shock that old guard Republican uh, Republican group. 
It's going to urge the federal government to increase its power to remedy economic and social abuses. And these ideas are going to include regulation of large corporations, tariff reform, graduated income and inheritance tax, currency reform, sale of public lands only in small parcels parcels to true settlers. So you can't just buy it and sell it. Uh, Labor reforms, strict accounting of campaign funds, where'd that money go, and the initiative referendum and recall. Now, the Republicans are going to lose badly in the congressional election of 1910 and for the first time in the 20th century the democrats would control the house of representatives in 1911 taff is going to press an antitrust suit against u.s steel corporation teddy was infuriated he'd be involved in helping j because he had been involved in helping jp morgan acquire the you know the the coal and oil companies in tennessee in 1907 so he's like hey you went against me that's rude all right so taft and roosevelt finally split uh teddy is going to become the choice for the progressive wing of the Republican Party. And in 1912, the Republican Convention gave Taft the nomination, although Teddy clearly had a majority of Republican votes. The progressive left the the progressives left the party to form a third party, Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party. And the old guard now control the Republican Party with the progressives gone. So the election of 1912, Woodrow Wilson was nominated by the Democratic Party under his platform of antitrust legislation, monetary changes, and tariff reductions. His new freedom favored trust busting, small enterprise, entrepreneurship, and a return to a free competitive economy without monopoly and strong states' rights. As with Teddy, Wilson favored a more active government in the economic and social affairs, but differed in strategy. He also rejected a strong role for government in human affairs as he regarded social issues as state issues, so like suffrage and child labor. The Progressive Republican Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party, now the convention enthusiastically nominated Teddy. It consisted largely of cultivated middle-class people, journalists, social workers, settlement house workers, and young lawyers. So under this, we get new nationalism. And this is going to seek continued consolidation of trusts and labor unions, which will be paralleled by growth of the uh, powerful regulatory agencies in Washington, which were, you know, they also wanted a more efficient government, don't we all? It's going to become the quintessential progressive platform, and it will set the liberal agenda, agenda for the next 50 years. Now, as with Wilson, Teddy favored an, an active role in economic affairs, but favored both trusts and regulation. Now, in contrast to Wilson, Teddy believed the government should play a larger role in human affairs. Teddy was shot in the chest in Milwaukee before giving a speech, and the other candidates suspended campaigning until Teddy recovered this is that one where he got shot while he was giving his speech and he continued to give his speech because teddy now the results wilson defeated roosevelt and taft uh roosevelt got 438 roosevelt 88 and poor old taft eight wilson got only 41 percent of the popular vote though democrats won a majority in congress for the next six years and teddy's party fatally split the republican vote giving wilson the victory the Socialist Party, Eugene Debs, got nearly a million votes, or 6%, and this represented the height of the American Socialist Movement. It doubled the votes that were received in 1908. The growing number of voters saw the Socialists as the last alternative to the corrupt two-party system. Socialists were part of progressive movement, though not accepted by most progressives. The party was not Marxist in its orientation and welcomed all Socialists. It may... Its main demand was the government ownership of railroads and utilities. They sought an effective government, better housing, factory inspections, and recreational facilities for all Americans. Socialists were supported 
by the IWW, which is the Industrial Workers of the World. This is this was a radical and diverse group of militant unionists and socialists who advocated strikes and sabotage over politics. Leaders included William Haywood of the Western Federation of Miners and Daniel De Leon. They sought to organize all workers under one big union, as Terence Powderly had tried to do with the Knights of Union. And the but the uh, IWW radicalism is going to end up hurting the broader socialist cause. Now, why did the Progressive Republican Party fail? Partially because it was fatally centered around one leader, Teddy Roosevelt. The party elected few candidates to state and local offices and had no patronage to give followers. Yet the party's impact still spurred Wilsonian Demo uh, Democrats to enact their progressive ideals. All right, so Woodrow, let's talk about him. Now, a little bit of background. He was born in Virginia, and he was the first president since Zachary Taylor to come from one of the seceded states. He was a student of government, a professor, and later he ended up being the president of Princeton University. He believed the president should play a dynamic role in government, and he believed Congress could not function properly unless the president provided leadership. He thought the government's responsibility was to pass good laws and that the courts should enforce them. He was very successful as a governor and president in bypassing legislators and appealing directly to the people. He was not willing to go as far as Roosevelt <clears throat> in government activism, though. He was also a white supremacist and didn't support efforts to improve rights for African Americans, and his moral righteousness often made him very uncompromising. Wilson came to office with a clear plan few presidents had rivaled. In his first four years, he had more positive legislation passed since Lincoln's presidency or perhaps even Alexander Hamilton's tenure during Washington's presidency. And he attacked the triple wall of privilege, the tariff, the banks, and the trust. Hey, the Underwood, Underwood Tariff Bill in 1913, also known as the Underwood Underwood Simmons tariff and uh, in an unprecedented move Wilson called Congress into a special session in early of 1913 and read his message in person rather than by his clerk now, this was a custom back in Jefferson's day the Underwood Underwood tariff bill was paused was paused was passed by the house uh, Wilson is going to successfully appeal directly to the American people to demand that their senators pass the bill now some of the, the uh, provisions there was two that they were to substantially reduce the tariff from 29 or to 29 percent from that 37 to 40 percent that was under the Payne Ulrich tariff back in 1910. And then they were to enact a graduated income tax under the authority granted by the recently ratified 16th Amendment. Now, this is supposed to be a rate of 1% on income over $4,000, 7% on incomes over $500,000. So, it's kind of a big jump. But anyway, uh, by 1917, federal revenue from the income tax exceeded tariff revenues in the wide, or the gap had widened since then. Now, the Federal Reserves Act of 1913 is going to create the Federal Reserve System. The nation's existing national banking system, enacted during the Civil War, showed its weaknesses during the Panic of 1907 with the inelasticity of the money supply. The monetary reserves were concentrated in New York and a few other large cities and could not be mobilized in times of financial stress to areas that were depressed. Wilson appeared dramatically for a second time in Congress, pushing for a sweeping reform of the banking system. Now, he's going to endorse... Democratic proposals for a decentralized bank run by the federal government. He also endorsed ownership of the regional banks by private 
of the regional banks by private banks, which was a Republican proposal. It was the most significant economic legislation between the Civil War and the New Deal of FDR. It carried the U.S. through the federal financial crisis of World War I, and it established a solid financial foundation in a new economic age. But it still had poor management in the late 1900s, and it helped actually bring on the Great Depression. Now, the two provisions, the Federal Reserve Board, or the Fed, would be appointed by the president and oversee a nationwide system of 12 regional reserve districts, each with its own central bank. Regional banks would be owned by uh, member or private financial institutions, and the the final authority of the Federal Reserve Board guaranteed a substantial measure of public control. The second provision was that the Fed was empowered to issue paper money, so Federal Reserve notes, so basically the money that you use today. Now, attacking those trusts, the Federal Trade Commissions Act of 1914. Early in 1914, Wilson again is going to go to Congress to appeal for the regulation of trusts. Now, some of the provisions that went in with it is it empowered a presidential appointed commission to monitor industries and interstate commerce, like the meat packers. You also had the cease and desist orders. The commissioners can could end unfair trade practices, unlawful competition, false advertising, mislabeling of products, and bribery. But it lacked the enforcement power to give government power to to give sorry i'm getting tongue tied it lacked the enforcement power to give government power to effectively regulate trusts they can do really do a lot with it the clayton antitrust act of 1914. Now, the purpose of this was to strengthen the Sherman Antitrust Act by increasing the list of unfair business practices, including price discrimination in interlocking directorates. The interlocking directorates provision was not enforced and was eventually dropped. Exempted labor and agricultural organizations from antitrust prosecution while explicitly legalizing strikes and peaceful picketing. The American Federation of Labor leader Samuel Gompers is going to hail the act as the Magna Carta of later labor, although he was privately disappointed with the lack of a guarantee for collective bargaining, which was generally one of their stronger suits. <clears throat> the provision was weak because it did not explicitly identify legal union activity, and, and uh, Wilson refused to go any further with it. You now, by 1917, the AFL membership had grown to more than. Three million in a nineteen because in nineteen ten it only been one and a half down from the two million in nineteen o four. So let's talk about Wilson. Now he was opposed to the triple wall of privileges. That's your three T's. <clears throat> so you've got tariffs, the banks, I know money monopoly. So T banks and trusts. So I'm hoping you remember that because it just sounds kooky. So then you also had his laws. Think of CUFF, C-U-F-F, Clayton Antitrust Act, the Underwood Tariff, Underwood, why do I keep calling it World? Anyway, Underwood Tariff Bill, the Federal Reserve Act, and the Federal Trade Commission. Now, other progressive reforms during Wilson's presidency. In order to win the election of 1916, Wilson signed other reforms, some of which he earlier blocked, believing that these were state matters. He embraced some of Roosevelt's new nationalism ideas to attract progressives. He appointed Louis Brandis, the people's lawyer, to Supreme Court, and he was the first Jewish American. The Federal Farm Loan Act of 1916, which was a low credit low-interest credit for farmers, which was a populist idea. The Warehouse Act of 1916, this authorized loans on the security of staple crops, and this was a populist sub-treasury plan idea. The Federal Highway Act of 1916, this is going to provide highway construction in rural areas. Then you have the Working Man's Compensation Act of 1916, this is going to give assistance to federal civil service employees during periods of disability. 
He also had the Child Labor Act of 1916 that restricted child labor on products in interstate commerce and the Adamson Act of 1916 that established an eight-hour workday for all employees on trains and interstate commerce with extra pay of overtime and a maximum of 16-hour shifts. The Supreme Court during this progressive era. The Conservation Court overturned a lot of the progressive gains in Congress and in the states. So you had Lochner versus New York in 1905 that represented a setback for the 10-hour-a-day movement as the court invalidated a New York 10-hour law for bakers. 1917, the court reversed its decision in Bunting versus Oregon and upheld a 10-hour law for factory workers. In 1918, the court overturned the Child Labor Act of 1916 in Hammer v. Dagenhart, raising that the issue of child labor was a state power, not a federal one. Atkins versus the Children's Hospital of 1923. It overturned a 1918 minimum wage law in Washington, D.C. for women. The court reasoned that the 19th Amendment gave women unprecedented political influence and that protective legislation in the workplace was no longer needed. The court also reasoned that the ability of legislatures to impose minimum wages also gave them the ability to impose maximum wages, a power unfair to businesses. I like whether they're trying to do a, a cap, a price cap on traveling nurses. Poo on that. All right, Schneck versus the U.S. in 1910. This is going to, yes, Schneck. This is going to uphold the Espionage and Sedition Acts that are going to be passed during World War I that are limited free speech and criticism of the government. You couldn't criticize the government. You can end up in jail. Boo. Boo hiss. All right, Prohibition of Alcohol. We're getting more booze from that. All right, 1874 to 1919. That's a long time. Liquor consumption increased in the years following the Civil War for obvious reasons. Uh, immigrant groups are going to resist temperance or prohibition laws, and the saloons in the late 19th century were exclusively male. But we're going to get the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or the WCTU, that will organize in 1874 and will be led by Francis Willard. The WCTU are going to place enormous pressures on states to abolish alcohol and enjoyed some success in that endeavor. Most important female organization in the 19th century and one of the most powerful lobbying groups. Now, for the first time, it was also the most important female suffrage group in the late 19th century. The Anti-Saloon League was formed in 1893 by men. This is going to pick up where the Women's Christian Temperance League left off and continue with their fight. They had more political connections to get legislation passed, and by 1900, 25% of Americans were living in communities with restrictions on alcohol. Several states and numerous counties passed dry laws, which controlled, restricted, or abolished alcohol during the late 19th and early 20th century. The progressive era gave increased momentum to prohibition. By 1914, half of the United States po uh, population lived in dry territory, and three-fourths of the total land area of the United States had outlawed the saloon. Big cities remained wet, and large immigrant populations drank traditionally. The attitude of sacrifice during World War I made alcohol drinking unpatriotic. Congress passed laws limiting production of alcoholic beverages. Ingredients could be used for industrial uses, feeding armies, or those who were dislocated by the war. The 18th Amendment in 1919 is going to ban the sale, transport, manufacturing, and consumption of alcohol. With that, we got the Volstead Act, which enforced the 18th Amendment. Just seems a little extra. By 1933, Prohibition became one of the greatest failures of the progressive era. Progressives have probably gone too far in trying to regulate society and personal behavior. Women's suffrage in 1848, goes way back, Seneca, uh, Seneca Falls Convention in New York was the beginning of the women's suffrage movement. It was led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Moth, Moth, Mott. Uh, Susan B. Anthony is going to later join this movement. 
By the late 19th century, the women's suffrage had split into two factions. You had the National Women's Suffrage Association, which was led by Stanton and Anthony, and this forbid men in the organization, and the American Women's Suffrage Association, which was led by Lucy Stone, which welcomed men. I guess they figured out they're the ones that are voting on whether or not we can vote, so we need to add them. The organization merged in 1893 to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association. It's a lot. Uh, for the gains for women in the ni late 19th century, by 1890, women had partial suffrage in 19 states. The western states of Wyoming and Utah were the first to grant suffrage beginning in 1869, and numerous states followed. The National American Women's Suffrage Association grew from 13,000 in 1893 to 75,000 in 1910, led by Carrie Chapman Catt. Two T's. She was the most effective leader of the new generation of women's suffrage proponents, and she de-emphasized the argument that women deserved the, right, deserved the vote as a matter of right because they were, in all respects, equal to men. She stressed the desirability of suffrage so women could continue to discharge their traditional duties as homemakers and mothers in the increasingly public world of the city. So, being on you know boards of public health, police commissions, and school boards. As a result, more states passed suffrage laws. The winning plan emphasized lobbying Congress, <clears throat> having effective meetings and parades. She publicized women's contribution to the war effort, <clears throat> which President Wilson er, er, used in urging Congress to approve suffrage. Initially, he did not support female suffrage, but Katz's efforts, as well as those of Alice Paul, forced his hand. With prohibition imminent as a result of World War I, the liquor lobby eased its opposition to female suffrage. Alice Paul's Congressional Union used military or militant tactics to gain attention. It picketed the White House in 1916 and underwent hunger strikes. She recruited the most militant women out of the, <coughs> the NAWSA. We're going to call that NAWASA. Anyway. She put forth the Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA, after 1920. The proposed amendment would have given women absolute equality with men. The amendment was readopted in the 1960s and passed Congress in 1972, but eventually died in 1982 with three -fourths of the states, when three-fourths of the states did not ratify. So, poo-poo on them. All right, so the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, granting women full suffrage. The bill was put forth in the House by Jeanette Rankin, the first woman in Congress. African Americans made few gains during this progressive era. President Roosevelt was criticized by Southerners for allowing Booker T. Washington to dine in the White House. Teddy never again publicly supported African Americans. The great African American migration northward during World War I resulted in violence. By 1922, million blacks lived in the North out of 11 million. They uh, hoped to escape the poverty and the discrimination of the South. Race riots broke out due largely to blacks moving into neighborhoods in predominantly white northern cities. Basically, they got butthurt. The Chicago race riot of 1919 lasted five days as black workers and returning World War I veterans clashed. 23 blacks and 15 whites died. 520 were seriously injured and over 1,000 were left homeless. Federal troops had to be called in. A large number of lynchings continued into between 1890 and 1920. Ida B. Wells Barrett was an influential leader of the anti-lynching movement. Now, due in part to her efforts, a 25% decrease in lynchings occurred after 1892, the peak year for lynchings. And she also helped form the NAACP. 
Now, organizing for increased rights, W.E.D. Dubois opposed Booker T. Washington's accommodation policies and demanded immediate social and economic equality for African Americans. He was raised in Massachusetts in contrast to Washington, an ex-slave from the South. He called Washington and Uncle Tom for condemning blacks to manual labor and perpetual inferiority. His opposition to Washington led to the formation of the Niagara Movement of 1905 to 1909. It demanded an immediate end to segregation and discrimination in labor unions, courts, and public facilities. It sought equality of economic and educational opportunity. Dubois demanded that the talented 10th of the black community would be given full and immediate access to the mainstream of American life. It would work, it would work to lift the entire African-American community. The NAACP formed the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. After the Springfield race riots in 1909, there's going to be a group of white progressives, including Jane Addams, John Dewey, William Dean Howells, and editor Oswald Garrison Villard will form the NAACP in 1910. W.D. Bois became the director of publicity and research and editor of the NAACP journal Crisis. The NAACP adopted many of the goals of the Niagara Movement. By 1914, the organization had 50 branches and 6,000 members. By the 1930s, it was a predominantly black organization. The activism of, of Washington, Dubois, and others led to some advances. The black illiteracy rate was cut in half between 1900 and 1910, and black ownership of land increased by 10%. Now, Wilson and African-Americans, like I said before, Wilson was a white supremacist and his tendencies from his, those tendencies came from his upbringing in Virginia. His wife had even stronger tendencies. His two-volume history of the U.S. is now notorious for its racist view of Reconstruction. Wilson greatly admired D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, who based some historical material on Wilson's books. <clears throat> the movie glorified the KKK. Congress would not pass several pieces of legislation that Wilson proposed to limit civil rights for African Americans. Wilson presided over the accelerated segregation in the federal bureaucracy, but in Amer uh, African Americans remained segregated in the federal government until the 1960s. 1960s, people! African Americans were effectively left out of the Democratic Party until the 1930s. Wilson appointed Southern whites to offices traditionally reserved for blacks. The darker side of progressionism. <clears throat> Progressives have been criticized for attempting to impose their middle-class WASP values on all of, the, all of society. The American Indian children, or as we like to call them, indigenous, because that's what they are, uh, they were taken from their families and they were placed in these boarding schools to assimilate them. This was due to the Dawes uh, Severity Act of 1887. We've discussed in detail how those worked. <clears throat> During World War I, Wilson spoke out against hyphenated Americans, so Native Americans, African Americans, Irish Americans, Chinese, you see where I'm going with this, who strongly valued the culture of their origin. Progressives often supported the segregation of blacks to prevent social tendencies. The WCTU president, Francis Willard, claimed drunkenness justified segregating its meanings. Poo-poo again. Progressives became increasingly nativist and supported harsh anti-immigration laws in the 1920s. Some supported the racist KKK in the 1910s and the 1920s. Progressive attempts to legislate morality led to the disastrous prohibition experiment in the late 19 or in the 1920s. And progressive trust in science led to the extreme practice of eugenics, and that was the attempt to eliminate crime, insanity, and other defects through selective breeding. What are we, cows now? Gave white supremacy the endorsement of science. So, you know, like doing IQ tests and other garbage. <clears throat> 
Progressive presided over the Red Scare of 1919 to 1920. It's one of the ugliest instances of violence and violations of civil liberties in the U.S. history. Now, due to World War I, the Progressives under Wilson got much of their agenda passed. The overreaching of progressives led to their defeat in the 1920 elections and the return to power of the Republican old guard. And millions of Americans have been or had become tired of progressivism. So if you if you want to kind of think about the progressive reforms, you had anti-socialism, anti-political trusts, anti or not anti-political anti-political machines. Sorry, anti-trusts. They wanted consumer protection, voter reform. Uh, they wanted the working and living conditions reformed, especially, you know, like child labor, conservation, women's rights, the Federal Reserve System, prohibition, and income tax. All right. I will have your uh, terms to know uploaded soon, as well as you will have four essay questions, and I will choose one for you to focus on.